And I'm Kim. And we are two paranormal investigators who delve into the depths of the famous and not-so-famous cases of Moira, ghosts, legends, and lore with a healthy dose of debunking. Debunking. We love it. Uh, I love it more than you. This is the episode of the debunk, though. I have to tell you, this is going to be such a good one. I feel like... This episode is going to be the history of debunking and where it came from. It's like going back in time to Kim's ancestors. <gasps> Grandpa! <laughs> to understand their brains and dissect it and say, where did Scully come from? Ooh. I kind of love, though, that like you're the one taking point on an episode that is full of debunking. Oh, it's so good, though. And it's, it's good. No, no, no. It's good. I approve, girl. I approve. I dedicate this episode to Kim Douthit and her <gasps> scullying. I'd like to thank the Spooky Academy for giving me this honor. I'd like to thank... <sighs> I'd like Scully. to thank Dana Scully. I'd like to... <laughs> because without her, <laughs> I wouldn't be here right now. I'm sorry. I'm being a little emotional. You know Sorry. who you should thank, though? Who should I think? You should thank our friend Fodor. Fodor. Not to be confused with Hodor. Hodor, which I have to say every time, that's where my brain goes. Hodor's the saddest character of oh, Game of Thrones. Hodor. Hodor. Spoiler he, alert. Yeah, his name has to do with some sad stuff, but we won't get into that. That's not what this episode's about. Uh-uh. Uh, Fodor, though, it's not about a fake door. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> okay, I don't know why that one got me, but it did. <laughs> it's gonna be yep. a loopy one, guys. Telling you now. Uh, <gasps> we were talking about this for recording. We both kind of had weeks and weekends. Um, Gabby, would you like to to fill people in? Uh, it's just been uh, you guys. I have a voice now, but it's been gone for a while, so it's a little um, raspy. Uh, but. Raspy. It's been a week. I was in Kansas City over the last weekend for my best friend's wedding. It was a great time. It was so nice to go. But now I am a, a corpse with legs that sometimes walk um, and a brain that's kind of mushy. So mushy. I'm trying to kind of make it solid again so I can provide the content for you all that is spooky and fun and not mushy, if you will. That's um, fair. That's fair. So Fodor. Fodor. <laughs> Fodor is our friend that we're going to talk about. He is the main person of this episode. And Fodor, technically his first name was Nandor, like uh, all uh, what we do in the shadows, Nandor. Um, that's the first thing I thought of. I was like, oh, I love that character. Um, but he, he went by Nandor Fodor, which, you know, if that's what you like, that's what you like. Um, but Fodor... We're going to call him Fodor. For the sake of the story, we're calling him Fodor. Every time I well, say Fodor. Because that was his last name, right? That was yeah. his last name. Yeah. Ki actually, technically, it was a oh. nickname. I'll explain that in a bit, though. Oh, all right, then. But um, Fodor was a ghost hunter. He was like an OG paranormal investigator in the 1930s. And he, this episode overall is going to be a bit about Fodor where he came from, what he studied, what he investigated, but more specifically, we're going to dive into poltergeists. So what's really cool, I know we've covered a poltergeist in the past with you, mm -hmm. the Enfield poltergeist. Yes, the Enfield poltergeist, the Enfield haunting. 
which mm-hmm. happened what in the sixties? Uh, Enfield 70s? was uh, 80s? Oh the <laughs> what? When did it happen? I was gonna say, <laughs> where did you get eighties from? I don't know. Um, uh, no, Enfield Poltergeist was uh, late seventies, so it was like seventy seven was kind of when it started, uh, and then it it went on till roughly seventy nine or so. I just know that they were able to record audio because you got me so good with those audio That delightful, tracks. creepy audio, yeah. yeah that, and there's, I mean, there was some theories when we did um, Amityville too, but yeah. we also scullied some of <clears throat> Yes, we did. But what's cool is we're going to go back further and we're going to stay local to England, to the Britain area. Um, so think UK. This is where we're going to be focused okay. on UK. Okay. Hey. hey. Uh, Fodor was in the UK. He uh, was a ghost hunter since 1934, and uh, he actually studied at the International Institute of Psychical Research, which is kind of cool. I'm a member. Who knew? It's actually, see, it's truly Kim's people. (laughs) Um, And his specialty was the poltergeist. Now, they're here. They're here. There is a specific book um, that I read that I'm going to tell you about because a lot of the information that I gathered for this episode is going to not just go toward this episode, but also the episode after. This is actually going to be a two-parter. So the first part of this Nandor Fodor episode is going to be based on him, give you some background on him, talk about some cases he worked on, what really got him established, and how he grew his... Um, knowledge, what he did, what he learned, how he scullied and really kind of meshed the worlds of the paranormal and science together, which no one had really done before, which is kind of cool. But part two is going to be what really gave him his credibility and what allowed him to get more exposure and do some more research and get more evidence, evidence, evidence. So the book that I used for this research for both episodes is called The Haunting of Alma Fielding, A True Ghost Story by Kate Summerscale. So she did a wonderful job on this book. Uh, I got really excited when I found it at Elliott Bay. Um, but I'm going to get more into Fodor first, give you guys a bit of a background. Sound good? Sounds good. All right, all right, all right. So poltergeist. Let's talk poltergeist for a second. Let's. The word poltergeist, it comes from the German word uh, of noisy spirit. It's been popularized in Britain in the 1920s. That's when it really showed its face, if you will. Mm -hmm. Uh, But no one really knew what poltergeists were. It was kind of ambiguous. It honestly still kind of is to some people. Um, Well, there's debate as to... um, what separates a poltergeist from different kinds of spirits? What True. truly makes up a poltergeist? I yep. mean, like like anything in the paranormal, because this is all kind of speculation. Yep. People get into arguments about <laughs> oh, what the right way is. Many, many times. So some people think it's a, a hoax by the living. Mm-hmm. Some people think it's a haunting of a dead person. Some people think it's spontaneous discharges of electrical energy. Now, Fodor. Having read the work of Freud, our friend Freud, 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 wondered if poltergeists might be kinetic forces 
unleashed by the unconscious mind. That's a quote from the book. So the first methodical study of poltergeist attacks were actually recorded in 1896, fun fact, when Frank Podmore of the Society for Psychical Research concluded that all of them were hoaxes, often perpetuated by mischievous, unstable, working-class girls. Okay, sir. Sure. Um, It just makes me angry. I'm like, don't blame it on girls. Get out of here. But that's just my opinion. Anywho. um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that was the first time it was actually recorded. It was 1896. Now, in 1911, physicist William Barrett also of the Society of Psychical Research, Uh suggested that poltergeists were otherworldly forces working through a, quote, radiant human center. I'm a radiant human center. Yes, you are. And that's why Mm. you are Kim Poltergeist Douthit. (laughs) Perfect. What a perfect Mm -hmm. angel. Now, some researchers argued that they were actually spirits of the dead. Some thought they were elementals. Do you know what an mm. elemental is? Mm-hmm. If our listeners don't know what an elemental is, elementals are primitive beings from a lower astral plane. So lots of options. It's like choose your own adventure of, of a poltergeist, basically. So hereward Carrington, Kim's favorite names. That is a legit name. That's that's like that's like old Anglo-Saxon name. Accurate. Very accurate. So Carrington had another theory. He was a psychical research as well, and he mm-hmm. referenced a historical survey um, of poltergeist cases in mm-hmm. 1935. So he argued that poltergeists were kinetic energy spontaneously projected by psychic individuals, typically adolescent girls, again, with the adolescent girls. So Fodor actually was a big fan of this theory, and he studied a few cases that made this seem pretty plausible. One of the cases that he studied was the case of the mysterious ringing bell at Alderborough Manor in Yorkshire in 1936. The culprit of this was a 16-year-old housemaid who was a young girl. That bitch. She liked to ring a bell. Apparently, she didn't know she was doing it. I don't know. However, in 19... I ring bells. I ring bells too, right? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, in 1937, in a doctor's house in Chelsea, dull raps were heard in that doctor's house. Apparently, they were proven to be from a 17-year-old servant girl. Now, the thing is, is with both of these situations, they weren't physically knowing that they were making these noises. So the weird part is, is that the maid's kinetic force was psychological, not biological, allegedly being the product of feelings rather than hormones. I feel like anyone who's hung out with teenage girls (laughs) or any teenager, you're just like, yes, I feel like anything unexplained, you put a teenager in the room, it's their fault. You're like, oh, yeah. They did it. It's that that teenage angst. Teen angst is actually just poltergeist. Just poltergeist. So to clarify, with both the bell ringing as well as the knocks, uh, they were not physically doing it. It was Correct. happening. Do, uh, dare I ask how they, quote unquote, proved it? So in this particular situation, they don't elaborate on it. This was like okay, a dangle. Just curious. Um, but I have like 
if I if I gave you all of the details of every single case that's listed in this book, we would be here for 10 hours. So I'm trying to keep it a little bit more succinct. I'll go into depth with a couple ones that are more interesting, that give you more evidence. Ev- evidence. And then we'll clarify. Sound good? Fair enough. Fair enough. I'll right. accept it. All right. I'll allow it. I knew you were going to ask me that going into it. So I just was ready for it. I know you. I am who I am. I, know I am you. who I am, Gabby. That's okay. So Fodor, of course, suspected that ghostly violence was a result of suppressed emotion. Sure. Sure. So let's go to Fodor for a second. Now I gave you a little intro, gave you a little dangle. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about him. Let's talk about him growing up. He was born in a Hungarian town of, mm, trying to pronounce this name, Berigzaz on uh, May 13th in 1895. His name when he was born was Nandor Friedlander. Oh. He was, get this, the 16th of 18 children. Oh, my God. Oh, I just, my uterus went just Ouch. shut down. It just shut down. That's birth control for you. Yeah. Oh. And he was born into mm. a large Jewish family. Mm-hmm. But uh, his younger brothers actually unfortunately passed away. So he Mm. ended up being the youngest of all the kids. And as a kid, he liked to have a good time. Uh, His pastimes. I I had to put this in here. You know, we generally talk about, is it relevant or is it not relevant? Do we talk about it or do we not talk about it? We're going to talk about this because it's for Kim's entertainment only. Yes. So as a kid, he liked to hunt beetles and butterflies in the woods. Nice. And his best friends were a small hunchbacked kid and a mischievous boy who liked to talk about huge penises and giant vaginas. I want to watch this buddy comedy (laughs) so badly. I just love that this detail was included in this book. And I felt like if they chose to include this in this book, I have to include it in the episode. Even if it's completely irrelevant, it's just... It basically just shows you, as a child, he had a sense of humor mm-hmm. and a wild imagination, right? Sure. And, hey, you know, surround yourself with like-minded individuals, I guess. Um, yeah. But, like, nothing scary. He wasn't, like, scared of weird things either. I right. think that's what that's saying. So he actually had his first paranormal experience at age seven. Okay. And it was when his grandfather had passed away. Now, during the funeral... um, he actually had leaned over his grandfather's coffin when they had opened it because mm. at the very end of the procession, the tradition was to open the casket for one last time for a final prayer, close it, mm. and then bury um, whoever had passed. And when they opened it, he heard his grandfather's voice whispering to him in Hebrew. Oh. And he didn't understand Hebrew. He just sure. knew it was his grandfather's voice and it freaked him out, but he didn't say anything to anybody because he didn't want anyone to think he was nuts. So mm-hmm. he just kept it to himself, but remembered it and it stayed with him. Hmm. Um, so fast forward in 1914 to 1918, he actually studied law in Budapest. During this time, he was actually able to get out of conscription for World War I. So he didn't have to fight in the war because he was in school, going to law school. So he finishes school. And in 1921, he left a staff job at the leading Hungarian daily to be a journalist in America. He told his family, you know what? 
I'm going to go to America. I'm going to make my name known. I want to get out there. I want to be a journalist. Um, and he had a love interest who was in Hungary and he like tried to get her to go with him to America. But his, ex- her excuse was that she was promised to somebody else in Hungary. So he was like, all right, bitch, bye. Uh, and he left her there. But he also left his family and his parents, and he was really close with his parents, and it kind of killed him to leave his family because he honestly had no idea when he was going to see them next. So you have to remember at this point in time, it's 1921, lots of it's, stuff is happening in yeah, Europe. Yeah, lots of stuff. And it's not like it's just as easy as it is today to kind of get where you need to get. Right. And it's not as easy to, like, contact people no, or be in touch. Shockingly, no text, but thankfully, no TikTok. Thankfully. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Um, Also, for a Jewish family, it's starting to get Mm. a little scary at this time. Yeah, it is. So that's another thing to think about. So anywho, he ends up leaving, and he decides as he leaves, he's going to go by the name Fodor. And Fodor was the nickname given to him by his family. So as he moves to America, now he is known as Fodor. Nandor Fodor is his new name. And also another thing that I just noted is that his original last name sounded a little bit more Jewish than Fodor. So it could have been a way to switch the sound of his name to not Mm -hmm. sound as Jewish because there were a lot of anti-Semitic people around during this time. It was the time of it. Yeah. Yeah. So he gets to New York City. He takes a job as a reporter and a feature writer for the Hungarian American press. Mm-hmm. Not too shabby. Pretty cool. There were a lot of people that lived in that area that were from Hungary. So he was kind of amongst his own people, a lot of immigrants. And he started to do a lot more reading so that he could learn English more quickly. Um, and this was, he was already pretty fluent in English, but he wanted to sound like good. And so he was doing a lot, a lot of reading. And he ended up developing a passion for true tales of the supernatural. Mm. I like this. I, I like this a lot. Do you see how he is your... Your mm-hmm. older self, it's like mm-hmm. I almost feel truly like Fodor is reincarnated into Kim Douthit, truly. <gasps> if we believe in that kind of thing. Why so not? why not? Why so not? Uh, apparently one of his favorite books or favorite readings that he found was by Hereward Carrington, and it was called Modern Psychical Phenomena. Look at that. And that came out in 1919. Mm -hmm. So he started to read about spiritualism and the Society for Psychical Research. And he thought, oh, my gosh, I found my people. Right. Scott gets so excited. Look at all of these people that are interested in paranormal things. The Society for Psychical Research was actually founded in England in in, uh, 1882 Mm -hmm. to establish uh, a science for the supernormal. And friendly reminder, spiritualism was a huge thing. In the 1800s, late 1800s, early 1900s. We talked about this uh, in a few of our episodes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So for for those of our listeners that have listened to our other episodes, friendly reminder. For those who haven't, spiritualism was huge during this time. Um, And Listen to those episodes. Yeah. Go back. Listen to the Fox sisters. It's a good time. It's another debunking moment for you. Um, However, the spiritualists believe that the dead lived past death and into another world and had the ability to communicate with the living. And psychical researchers investigated weird experiences. <laughs> it's us. It's our people. Um, and they did this to determine if they were really the results of spirits or 
unknown natural laws. Was it dust, right? Like, is it an orb or is it dust? Well, who knows? It's um, a lot of times it's dust. A lot of times it's dust. But hey. And but here sometimes. Is, sometimes it's legit. Sure. And yeah. thus is the birth of the Scully and Mulder dynamic is when yeah. this started to happen. So, and if you don't know who Scully and Mulder is, go watch the X-Files and come dude, back to us. Dude, why even listen to us? <laughs> no shade. <laughs> so Shade. See? Scully and Mulder. Pure action. <laughs> <laughs> so Fodor was a true mix of Mulder and Scully. It's like you take them and put them together and you get Fodor. He befriended and interviewed as many people as he could in the spiritualist movement as possible. He was like, I got to make all the friends. I need to know all the things. So first dude he becomes friends with, Hereward Carrington, Mm -hmm. his friend who wrote that one thing that he read that he fell in love with. And Carrington actually lived in New York City, so it was really easy for him to hang out with this guy, be friends with him. And Carrington connected him. He hooked him up good with a few people who we know very well for Fodor to interview and write about. So Fodor actually interviewed Harry Houdini. He uh, interviewed Hungarian psychoanalyst Sandor Fenenzi mm. and our friend, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Kind of cool. That's super cool. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. So, and, and like at the time, obviously like, a lot of fame hadn't happened quite as intensely as it would later, but mm-hmm. these were still pretty well-known people. So the fact that like Fodor had the connection to talk to them and, and get to know them and understand, it was interesting also to have the dynamic of both Harry Houdini and Arthur Conan Doyle because one was so firm in spiritualism and one just wanted to de- debunk everything. Debunk so everything, yeah. It was great to have like a multitude of different perspectives to listen to. So in 1922... Guess who decides to show up in America? <gasps> Fodor's love interest, who was what? like, nah, I got a dude. He's in Hungary. I'm not coming. Apparently, that dude was not hanging out. So she was like, yo, I'm coming to you, Fodor. Her name was Irene Lichter. Ooh, Lichter, hardly name. knew her. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> it's too funny. But um, I'm Told you we were loopy. It's going to happen sometime. We are are. are very Um, loopy. (laughs) So Irene and Fodor get married. And a year later, she gives birth to their daughter, Andrea, in 1923. And a year after that, unfortunately, Fodor's father dies in Hungary in uh, 1924. So Fodor obviously is mourning. He's sad that his dad is no longer around. He didn't get to say bye to him. So he decides, you know what? I know all these people involved in spiritualism. I'm going to test something out and see if I can communicate with my dad. So he tests the communication that he learned from the spiritualists on his recently deceased father in Uh a seance room. And he actually hears his dad speak to him in Hungarian saying, Oh, wow. Sweet son which is what he used to call him in life, but said it in mm. Hungarian to Fodor. And so at this point, Fodor's like all in. He's like, oh my gosh, I'm hooked. This mm-hmm. is real. This is awesome. So he's yeah. in. So he then joins the Ghost Club and the London Spiritualist Alliance, makes a bunch of more friends over at the Fairy Investigation Society, mm-hmm. and begins writing articles on supernormal topics which he's just 
deep into it at this point. And now here's something else to think about is spiritualism. Yeah, it was popular, but it was also big money in Britain at this time. Sure. So here's context for you. Three fourths of a million Britons were killed in the great war in world war one. Mm-hmm. Plus the quarter of a million people who died in the influenza pandemic. That's a lot of people in a short period of time to pass yeah. away. Yeah. And so like every single family had suffered one or more losses, right? So all of these people are mourning and you get this many people wanting to connect with someone that they love that is past mm-hmm. and look who's making money mm-hmm. is the spiritualists, right? Mm-hmm. Some are legit, some are not, but you don't know everything's you ambiguous. Know. Yeah. So people are longing to connect with their loved ones and seances were the way to do that. So this is a quote, a voluntary haunting, a summoning of ghosts at which the dead would both speak through trumpets and through mediums, rap on tables, blow cold breezes, and sometimes even be touched, seen, or smelt. That's what happened in seances. And this became so popular that Fodor noted that, quote, the mechanism of psychic communication will be understood and used with the same facility as the wireless and the telephone. Mm. Isn't that wild that they That's literally crazy. thought that seances were like telephones? So it's, I mean, but it's, it's funny because like it's wild, but also I super buy it. Oh, for sure. Like I super get it. I get how people could think that. Especially. We might have some people who still think that. Yeah. I mean, but that's the thing is that like. It's like religion, like some of yeah. it you can't prove, but you can believe sure. in it. And, and it's, yeah. it's one of those things too, when you are in distress and mourning and needing some kind of connection, whatever that coping mechanism might be, yeah. might be real to you, even of if course. it's not real to someone else. So it's just a really interesting way to, to look at it. I feel like. Honestly, so what's really cool too, though, about all of this is that as I was researching it, obviously I just read this one book. I I Mm -hmm. clearly don't have a ton of time. If I had more time on my hands, I would have read like 75 books. I would have read all of Fodor's books. I would have read a bunch of stuff from the Society of Psychical Research. Ain't nobody got time. I mean, if if we had more time in our hands, we would have an episode every week. We don't. (laughs) True. So... Uh, I think it's just a really interesting topic. I think we could really go into depth with this further if we really Mm -hmm. wanted to. But also I think it's really cool just to have that like perspective of someone who was in it and into this kind of thing, but really wanted to prove it right and wasn't one of those like mediums, quote unquote, that Mm -hmm. wasn't super legit. But not everybody, you know, was a fan. Sure. The thing is, is that Fodor at this point with his involvement, he begins to gain a reputation and the Daily Express interviewed him in 1930, Uh describing him as, quote, vital, vivacious and eminently practical and matter of fact. He was thorough, like super, like Henry David Thoreau, like really thorough. Mm. Sorry, that was really dope. Um, But he was known for trying to prove mediums to be false during their seances by doing like a deep search before the seance. So like he was someone that you would have appreciated so much, Kim, 
because he literally, before seances, would examine the entire room, like pull apart a clock, look behind the every single chair underneath it, under the table, like turn everything upside down, check through every nook and cranny, not just in the room, but also on the medium. And I, I know there's like, this is like another weird thing when I was reading this, I was like, mm, I don't know how I feel about like a man, like pull it like looking under a woman's clothes like as a sure. medium that might be kind of weird but they actually had a lot of women involved in the seances too and and the way it generally worked was that the women would like help the women and the men would do the men so like it wasn't right. like a invasive sexual thing or anything but um basically they would check like not just the clothes, but they would like check people's mouths in their ears, comb their hair, specifically like Fodor is the guy that's asking them to do all this. Like no one else was doing that, but Fodor is the one that's asking them to undress and determine if they're concealing any objects that would conveniently make their presences known later during a seance. So I just have an appreciation for him for that. But apparently not everyone was a fan. I know I mentioned that before. He had his share of trolls uh, who claimed that he was insane and not credible. So... Fodor even felt further that he had to prove himself. He had to start publishing his own books. And so he did. And he had a doctorate in law. So automatically he has an air of authority, right? So mm -hmm. in 1934, he publishes a 500,000 word encyclopedia of psychic science with a foreword by Sir Oliver Lodge and immediately applied for a post at the new International Institute for Psychical Research in South Kensington. Now, this institute was unique, it was new, and it was the perfect place for Fodor. It actually aims to combine the spiritualist and scientific approaches to the supernormal, which was right up his alley. No one else had really done that. This is the first time that science is being considered in this mm -hmm. world. And Fodor was a smart cookie, so he capitalized on it. He raised a third of the Institute's yearly costs of a thousand pounds from subscriptions. He sold tickets to lectures. He had public seances and screenings, and he even solicited donations from rich patrons. And his salary grew to 300 pounds a year, which was a lot at the time. It was actually double the average national income just wow. by being involved and doing everything he did for this um, Institute, which is kind of cool. So what's the next step for him? He's got to travel, right? Mm -hmm. Do a little ghost tour. So he travels the country to investigate hauntings, not just any hauntings. He did a little bit of everything. He did levitations, automatic writing and drawing. He did spirit possession. I didn't even know that this was a thing. Glossolalia? Glossolalia? Speaking in tongues? Oh, speaking in tongues, yeah. That's what it's called. Um, telepathy, we know that one. Mm -hmm. Materialisms, and he even did some spirit photography, which is kind of mm. cool. And he didn't do it alone. He brought his family because he was like, family trip with ghosts. That sounds like a good time. Um, so, you know, when you can't, you know, have a regular vacation, you just bring your family with you to haunted places. And they all did investigations together, which I think is really cute, to be honest. Yeah. Um, nothing like some quality family time with some unexpected or expected guests. Am I right? You know? Uh-huh. So Andrea, his daughter, she loved it. She was super into it. She was like mini Fodor. The mom, 
not so fond of everything. Not so much. But she was a trooper. She still would go to, like, seances with Fodor. Um, And, you know, sometimes Fodor took it a bit far. Uh, You know, I appreciate his dedication. I'm just going to say that. But he actually injected himself one time with mescaline. Oh. Oh. So that he could enhance his experience with the paranormal. Jeez. And apparently he tripped so super hard thinking it was paranormal. I'm going to go ahead and say that that was the drugs. Um, Drugs? Yeah. (laughs) Drugs? I think it was drugs. Could it be drugs? Maybe drugs. Did I say drugs? Did we say drugs? Was it drugs? No. Drugs? Drugs? Drugs. Dust? Drugs? Drugs. Dust? Drugs. Debunk? Drugs Drugs and dust. (laughs) I mean, dust drugs. Put them together and he got a winning combo. (laughs) Um, So, you know. Of course, with these adventures, he meets some interesting characters, if you will. He actually had a rival in the paranormal world, uh, as one does. I feel like that happens to this day. Uh, his rival was named Harry Price. And Harry Price was a, was a ruthless self-publicist who had been in the ghost hunting realm since the 1920s. And had made quite a name for himself as well, but just really did not like Fodor. And they basically were like competing against each other to try to get better cases to cover and Mm -hmm. publish. Um, And so that was one. And then there's also the quote, air quote, I'm doing finger quotes, air quotes. You can't see it because this is an auditory medium, (laughs) pun intended medium. Uh, He also worked with quite a few mediums. (laughs) Uh, The mediums that he worked with did some wild shit. So uh, in 1935, he and his wife attended a seance at the British College of Psychic Science in South Kensington with 24-year-old Hilda Lewis, known as the flower medium for producing flowers during seances. So prior to the seance, as Fodor asks, she undresses in front of two female members of the Institute to prove she's got nothing on her. And Hilda apparently had a spirit guide. So for those of you who don't know, a lot of seances, people channel an inner quote unquote spirit guide, generally has a name, maybe sometimes speaks in another tone of voice. Mm -hmm. Um, And Hilda's spirit guide was named Robin. And Robin would come through during the seance and make statements about people's lives that were very specific within the circle. So it was something that no one could really debunk. It was very weird that she had access to that. How would she have access to that information? That seems kind of strange that she would know that. And of course, Fodor is trying to figure out where are these flowers coming from? Are they real? Like, where are they coming from exactly? Apparently during the seance, uh, she would double over and heave forward. And this one time, 17 roses and cornflowers ejected from her hair and her shoulders. Oh, geez. And she claimed that she always felt labor pains as she gave birth to the flowers, she told Fodor, Mm. which is dramatic, ma'am. So another one was Harry Brown. Harry was another medium. He claimed that he could levitate. And during seances, Fodor could never figure out how he could levitate. And he constantly, he referenced him as almost like a cork in water. And Mm -hmm. how he would bounce around the room like a cork in water, but couldn't figure out how he did it. Uh, And 
Fodor was just like, you know what? I need to do some experiments. I need to see how people are doing this shit. Let's figure it out. Let's scully it. Let's debunk it. Like he was just really wanting to figure it out. So he proved himself as a scientist just as much as he proved himself to be a showman. So (laughs) alas, the true scully is born prior to scully before scully, man. So (laughs) this is our section called let the debunking begin. Let her out. His official first experiment at the Institute was to try to recreate a recent study from Reno, Nevada, uh, where Dr. R.A. Waters claims to have photographed astral bodies escaping from dying animals. Hmm. Trigger warning, I'm going to be talking about animals dying. (laughs) Um, (laughs) What? I I didn't like reading it. I'll just tell you that. Um, Generally speaking, we'll talk about dead people all day, but when we talk about a dead animal, I'm not a happy camper. Mm-hmm. Um, so Fodor wants to get someone legit to help him. So he commissions a, a physics teacher from London. His name was BJ Hopper. Also Kim's favorite names, BJ Hopper. It's <laughs> a, a good name. Great name. Uh, he commissioned him to help him with this experiment. And they ended up building a cloud chamber out of a bunch of different contraptions. And the cloud chamber would detect ionizing particles and sad story here, folks, they anesthetized a group of mice, frogs, linnets, and cockroaches and placed them within the chamber beneath a rolling guillotine and pulled a Marie Antoinette on them. Yikes. At least they, put down the animals before killing them. I was like, at least sure. that's kind of kind. But they ended up taking pictures, took photographs, looked, watched. They didn't see anything within the photographs or with their own eyes. No soul slipping away, no nothing. They didn't see anything. Mm-hmm. So Fodor scullies it hard. He publishes an article with the results and points out flaws in Dr. Waters' original experiment. Guess what he said the spirits were? What? (laughs) Dust. (laughs) Yes! This is a quote. This phenomenon is akin to watching for the appearance of fantastic figures in the burning coals in a fire or sky gazing to find shapes in the clouds. If you look long enough, your eyes would find things to see. End quote. We say this all the time, and this just makes me really happy to hear him say it. So this experiment really solidified the Institute's scientific credibility, and Fodor, quote, yearned as much as others did for proof of the, that the dead lived, but he had to be true to the evidence, end quote. Evidence. Evidence. Freaking love Fodor, man. Fodor's the yeah. guy. He's, he's legit. I'm, I'm, I'm here for it. So... Fodor hires a private detective at this point because he's like, if I can't figure out how these mediums are doing it, I need to hire someone else to help me out. So he hires a private detective, a PI. I love that he hires a PI. In 1935 to investigate his floral friend, Hilda Lewis. Guess what? She gets caught buying flowers and hiding them in her clothes. And he finds out that she was eavesdropping on people from the seance's conversation prior to the seance because she was a switchboard operator and she had access oh. to their conversations. Yeah, well, that'll do it then. <laughs> debunked. Hard debunked. debunked. Now, 
here's the thing. Fodor was, quote, learning that the golden age of psychical study was also the heyday of supernatural hustle. And that to verify his subjects' claims, he would have to turn sleuth himself. So he was sleuthing. And another quote, never at any time must a bullying attitude be adopted. And the whole business must be carried through with dignity and with gentleness and consideration, end quote. For Fodor, being rude was bad business. He wasn't going to just like oust people publicly. So he did a lot. He did do a lot of debunking of these people. He did it for himself and then called people out like straight to their faces, basically, instead of doing it publicly. So he was at least polite about it and wasn't rude. Um, and, And I think that that was something that was really good to note here because he wanted to keep his own reputation going but also wanted to make sure that he he told people like, ah, I know what you're doing. I see you. You're not legit. So he definitely did that, but he was careful about how he did it. The thing is, is that he was really discouraged by all this. Fodor was a true at heart molder. He really wanted to believe in everything. He really wanted to believe. And then his inner scully was like, but wait, no. So that inner struggle, it's like, I imagine like an angel and a devil on a shoulder from like old cartoons, but on one shoulder, it's Scully and on one shoulder, it's Mulder. (laughs) And it's just like, I want to believe. Another one's like, but no, (laughs) hard no, debunk. Uh, So, you know, to determine that the things that he was so excited about were fraudulent was kind of a bummer for him, but he still believed that some people have to have supernatural powers. They have to exist. He just has to figure out who they are. Sure. So. It was the poltergeist activity that he had witnessed that really made him tick. And he needed to figure out this poltergeist stuff because it was so ambiguous, kind of like what we were talking about in the beginning, right? So he guessed that a few people suffered from mental abnormalities that allowed them to detach from their conscious selves and tune into others' moods and thoughts, and that a very few were so dissociated that they radiated kinetic energy. He questioned, did this system stem from suppressed feelings? If Mm -hmm. unconscious desires found ways of revealing themselves via slips of the tongue, dreams, jokes, and tics, uh, thank you, Freud, uh, maybe they could also be manifesting themselves beyond their bodies. Mm -hmm. So he really wanted to dig into that a little bit more. And Freud was one of his favorites. So it was a personal favorite of Fodor's. His work at this point had been published everywhere by the 1920s. So a lot of people had access to reading Freud and his concepts. So think about that too, because if there's people that are creating situations, just like Fodor is trying to say, well, maybe it's because of this thing. Someone else could also say, yeah, it's because of that thing, but I'm actually doing it intentionally, but blaming it on what Freud is saying. So there's that, that double edged sword right there. So you know, people could people have read about this and unknowingly caused their own poltergeist activity to happen too. That's another edge of it. So mm-hmm. there's a couple different routes it could go. Now, Eileen Garrett, you're going to love Eileen Garrett. She was one of Fodor's friends and she was one of the most well-known clairvoyants in England. Mm-hmm. She actually had a spirit guide who was an Arab warrior named Uvani. And guess what? Eileen was a skeptic and didn't believe in spirits. Hmm. She even told Fodor that her gifts might be psychological instead of spiritual Mm -hmm. and that Uvani might actually just be parts of her subconscious self. Mm. She straight up told him that. (laughs) All right, then. Which, like, the self-awareness there is just 
Gotta appreciate it, yeah. Wow, really impressed with Eileen. Well, I mean, most people aren't that self-aware. Right, which is why it's so impressive that she was that self-aware. I appreciate that. And there were multiple cases that involved Fodor where this was thought to be true. So, you know, if we're thinking about cases, I want to give a couple of examples. Mm-hmm. With these cases, I'm going to give two, two main examples. The third one we'll save for the next episode. However, it started with the Kellys. Mm-hmm. And this is a married couple. They lived in a home called Ash Manor, which I just love that name. Uh, and in 1934, they saw the figure of a small man in their bedroom doorway. He was wearing a smock, leggings, a cloth hat, and had a round red face with glittering eyes, mm. glittering malevolent eyes. He sure. was not a happy camper. And when he tilted his head back, he had a slit throat. So they freak out and they call a priest from the Church of England to help them. Does he do anything? No. Hard no. Total fail. So next step, they contact the International Institute. So Eileen and Fodor mm-hmm. and Uvani show up and Uvani tells the family that, quote, their unhappiness was animating the phantom. It was a spectral automaton living on life borrowed from human wrecks. She literally straight up called them human wrecks, which I was just like, damn, Eileen. This is a phrase I need to use more frequently, too. You're a human wreck. Human wreck. That should be one of our hashtags. Hashtag (laughs) human wreck. Hashtag human wreck. So Eileen then goes on to say, all right, this ghost dude, go on and possess me. Why not? Because she also doesn't believe in spirits. So she's just like, sure, do it. <laughs> just, I freaking love Eileen. She's just my hero in this story. Come on, Eileen. Come on, Eileen. Uh, anywho. So she allows herself to be possessed by this ghost. The ghost is named Henley. And apparently he's a 16th century nobleman eager to avenge his death. And allegedly is the culprit of the haunting. But he just keeps saying, I need to get back at them. I need to, like, revenge. Revenge, revenge, revenge was his whole thing. Now, there's no resolve there. We, we didn't find out if he went away after Eileen allowed herself to be possessed by him or if that was just a manifestation within Eileen mm-hmm. that happened to help the two move on. But later... They all find out that the husband, Maurice Kelly, was gay Mm -hmm. and a, quote, debauchee and alcoholic. Uh, And that his wife, Catherine, even though she was a beautiful lawyer, was sexually frustrated and addicted to morphine. Mm. So Fodor (sighs) noted, quote, I realized how the ghost had been used as a distracting element. A sort of tranquilizer, which helped hold the family together without bringing their true frustrations into the open, end quote. So the ultimate question, was it a ghost, Mm -hmm. a real ghost of a spirit of a dead person, or was it a manifestation of the couple's frustrations with each other, Mm -hmm. with themselves, what have you? 
So to Fodor, this case actually confirmed his theory that supernormal phenomena could be caused by forbidden feelings. In his mind, it was not an actual ghost. It was a manifestation of their own minds. Sure. And then I had to save the best to last. There was Jeff the Mongoose. Oh, yeah. This, I, I've been excited for Jeff the Mongoose because that, that one's been on my radar before. I heard about Jeff the Mongoose a long time ago. Yeah. And I, I remember hearing about it and I was like, what the hell? <laughs> it's just, it's a real good one, guys. Jeff, it's a good name for a mongoose. It's also not spelled J-E-F-F. Yeah. It's spelled yeah. G-E-F. Yes. Like GIF. But it's Jeff. Just like it's, yes, GIF, not GIF. Sure. <laughs> Which is also a poltergeist, apparently. I'm just kidding. No, totally. it's not. Yeah, um, it should be. Should, should be. be. Why not? So Jeff was also known as the Dalby Spook. Sorry. <laughs> so also a good name. Lots of good names in this. Some excellent names. Fantastic names. So Jeff was allegedly a talking mongoose, which claimed to inhabit the farmhouse that was owned by James Irving and his family on the Isle of Man. Irving was also a piano salesman turned farmer, mm -hmm. and he lived with his wife and 13-year-old daughter, Voiri. I think that's how you'd pronounce her name. It's V-O-I-R-R-E-Y. Voiri? Voiri. Voiri. Yeah, sure. It's really pretty. I actually really mm -hmm. like that name. So James Irving kept a log. Which I love because I'm like, yes, paranormal investigator, keep a log. Uh, we know what happens when it happens. Uh, so legit, pretty legit to do that. I, I enjoy that. Um, yeah. So he kept a log since 1932 of every single Jeff activity that ever happened. Mm -hmm. Now, Jeff wasn't actually a mongoose, though, in case you're wondering. You're like, why would someone keep a log about a pet mongoose named Jeff? Sure. <laughs> uh, he was a classic poltergeist. A real rude one at that. How rude. He was pretty, pretty rude. Uh, and one time he actually referred to himself as a, quote, earthbound spirit. Mm -hmm. Another time he told the Irvings, quote, I am not a spirit. I am just a little extra clever mongoose. <laughs> End quote. All right. All right. I'll take it. I'll take it. I just think it's funny when you have to tell someone that you're, you're extra clever. Like, shouldn't I'm... they know that you're well, extra clever? I mean, sometimes you just got to, like, fill people in on it. That's fair. That's fair. Well, he also said that he claimed to be the ghost in a form of a mongoose. So he just was, like, basically fucking with them. Like, I don't know. Who am I today? I don't know what I am. Do you know what I am? I and don't know what you are. I, yeah, he was very clearly confused in his own self-identity. Uh, but he was, had quite the talent for a uh, conversation mm -hmm. allegedly jeff spoke multiple languages and he was cocky about his intellect hence extra clever mongoose and uh, irving noted all of this in his log mm -hmm. he was super pissy though jeff was not a, a cool cool jeff he was a not cool jeff <laughs> he threw things he spat at the family Ooh. he would kill rabbits and bring them to the family, which sounds like a cat, to be honest. That sounds like something yeah. a cat would do. Or a dog. More, more cat, though. Yeah. And uh, allegedly, he was the town gossip, which I think is very funny. That's kind uh, of delightful. 
Apparently he would roam the island during the day to gather gossip and then would shit talk the entire town to the family. Ah, that's um, awesome. And then he would raid the kitchen at night and he was particularly fond of butter and chocolate and biscuits. I mean, who isn't? That's also very fair. And this is a direct quote from Jeff himself. I'll split the atom. I am the fifth dimension. I am the eighth wonder of the world. <laughs> I just think it's so funny. So, so he seems a little wonky, a little, a little wacky. Sure. This, this is a very interesting and very vocal yeah. poltergeist. Mm-hmm. But sometimes Jeff wasn't so bad. He supposedly guarded the house and informed the family if there were any approaching guests or if there was an unfamiliar dog around. Mm-hmm. And they said that if someone had forgotten to put out the fire at night, Jeff would go down and, and turn, out the, turn off the fire. Well, it's very kind of Jeff. What a good house guest. What a good house guest. The Irvings even claimed that Jeff would also wake people up when they overslept. Like, oh, it's time for school. You missed your alarm. <laughs> He'd wake people up. And apparently whenever mice would get into the house, Jeff would assume the role of a cat. And uh, well, I mean, mongooses, that, that tracks. Like sure. they, they attack snakes and stuff. That's true. Although apparently he didn't want to kill the mice. He just wanted to scare them. <laughs> he was like full, like that's, that's tried. That's like just tried and true poltergeist. That's I'm not going to kill you. I'm just going to scare you because I'm a poltergeist. Yes. Not a cat. Yeah, not a cat. No. And another thing he did was that uh, apparently he was rewarded with goodies. So, like, the family would give him the biscuits, the chocolate, even, like, bananas. And food was left for him and a saucer suspended from the ceiling, which he took when he thought nobody was watching. What I'm, what I'm really learning here is that I would like to be a animal poltergeist haunting someone's home. This is, this is my takeaway. <laughs> This is this sounds like a good gig, and I I would like to look into this further. So the next episode is actually not about Alma Fielding; it's about Kim the Poltergeist. Yeah, um, as but but as a mongoose or a cat or something because that sounds much more fun. It's got to be a cat. It's got to be a cat. So the Irvings claim that the mongoose regularly also would go with them to the grocery store in the market. Sure, but. Always stayed on the other side of the hedges. He wouldn't like go inside. He had to stay outside. So he'd like accompany them there, but then he wouldn't go in. And mm-hmm. while he was outside, he would just be chatting incessantly to himself. Mm-hmm. This is so specific. It drives me crazy. I'm like how? What? Who is saying this? Now, of course, this is like tabloid gold, right? So like the second tabloids hear anything about Jeff the Mongoose, they lose it. Sure. They go nuts for Jeff. Jeff is famous through the tabloids, unsurprisingly. So a bunch of journalists flock to the house and they want to catch a glimpse of Jeff. A bunch of people, locals, visitors claim to actually have heard Jeff's voice. Mm-hmm. And two people claim to have seen it, but there's never been physical evidence, evidence, evidence. of Jeff. So hmm. enter. Fodor's rival, Harry Price. Mm-hmm. He beats Fodor to the punch. He gets there first, tries to investigate, but doesn't find much. 
He finds footprints, stains on the wall, and hair samples that claim to be evidence of Jeff. Mm -hmm. But they ended up being the Irving's sheepdogs. And there were several photos that were claimed by the Irvings to depict Jeff, but it was the dog. Uh. So at this point, Price, you know, observes a couple other things that are interesting. He observes Mm -hmm. that double walls of wooden paneling covering the interior rooms of Mm -hmm. the old stone farmhouse. So there was considerable interior air between the stone and the wood walls that quote makes the whole house one great speaking tube with walls Mm -hmm. like sounding boards. So by speaking into one of the many apertures in the panels, it should be possible to convey the voice to various parts of the house. Mm -hmm. So according to Richard Wiseman, Price and his partner Lambert were Mm -hmm. less than enthusiastic about the case. And concluded that only the most credulous of individuals would be impressed with the evidence for Jeff. That's, that's, uh, that's a little bit of a burn. So price is out. He's like, yes, yeah, screw this. I'm out of here. Like, I'm not doing this. That's a hard no. Bye. And Bye. so, of course, Fodor's like, uh-uh, I'm on it. I got to come in and check it out. Sure. So Fodor has to pursue the ca- this case because it's so, wahoo, it's a loony one. I got to check it out. Right. So Fodor gets there, pays them five pounds a week to stay with them, and tells the family, this is a quote, it was written in a letter to the family, mm-hmm. I hope that Jeff will bear with me and will not throw things at me or spit at me in the night. He has my admiration. He is clearly the cleverest thing far and wide. Tell him also that I shall bring him chocolate and biscuits. So, do you think Fodor found anything? Did he find chocolate and biscuits? Oh, he brought him chocolate and biscuits. Yeah, he uh, did. But it's a man who he, knows what's up. Does he find anything about Jeff? No. Hard no. Fodor finds no. literally nothing. Stays there for a week. Doesn't see. Doesn't Aww. hear. Nothing. Jeff just isn't isn't around. I mean, listen though, poultry. You can't expect a poultry guys to like follow a normal human schedule. That's true, but he was there for a whole week. It's not like yeah, he was there well, for a day. I know, but I also like. I wow, how is it that I'm on the other side of this? Um, <laughs> what's happening? This is what Gabby? happens when I cover like a Scully type person is that you become Mulder. I Scully the Scully. <laughs> um, no, no, no. I mean, again, I'm not. I'm not like all of that is 100 percent legit evidence. Evidence, but exactly. Um, I mean, we run into it when we're doing investigations. Like, part of why we journal is to make sure we try to maximize the chances of having an encounter of something, you know, looking for patterns. Are they more active at this time, this time, this time, or this time, whatever. But, like, spirits don't follow a schedule. I think about Spooked, uh, the old space, is a great example. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I get grabbed in the underground one day and eight months go by before I have another experience specifically in the underground. So it's, it's, it's not that all of that is hundred percent valid. He didn't have an experience, but I, I would say, um, 
It doesn't mean that there's nothing there. It, it doesn't mean there's nothing there. It means he didn't experience anything. That's fair. So it, it doesn't mean it wasn't a valid haunting. It just means, or poltergeist. It just means that he himself did not find any evidence. And we do need the evidence, but it doesn't discount that people are still having these experiences. True. That's fair. That's a true point. That's also Scully the Scully. Scully the Scully. Look at that. Scully squared. It's like, uh-huh. now it's Mulder. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> wow. Look at that. So he doesn't find anything, but Fodor also doesn't think that any kind of deliberate deception had occurred. Sure. Uh, and he molded a pretty complex psychological theory to explain Jeff mm-hmm. based off of Jim Irving's personality, basically mm. thinking that Jim Irving had a dissociative identity disorder, oh. which is also known and previously known as a multiple personality disorder. Mm-hmm. So he actually claimed that James Irving's unhappiness somehow lay behind the Jeff phenomena and the creation of this Jeff character through a personality within James Irving. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which I think is like, I could totally see that. Sure, yeah. Now, at the time, other people thought, with all of this talk of poltergeist, they have a 13-year-old mm-hmm. daughter. Mm. All these people are saying, it's the daughter. She's mm-hmm. doing it. She might not know she's doing it. Sure. <laughs> but she's doing it. But at the time, when they said that the daughter was doing it, she just literally was like, hard no, not me. I swear to God, it's not me. But again, we don't know. She literally denied it being her fault up until her death in 2005. Oh, wow. Which that's... I think is crazy. No, but that's that's uh, respect. Like, she stood by what she said. Yeah. So that's uh, the Jeff adventure. <laughs> and, you know, the same year as the Jeff adventure, Fodor encountered more problematic mediums. So he sent off more of the Institute's evidence on fraudulent mediums to be published. It was Mm -hmm. meant to be published in a nice way, in a very respectful way that wasn't calling anyone out arbitrarily, but it was in the Spiritualist Weekly Psychic News. He had Mm. all the good intentions. Mm -hmm. Some people that worked there were pissed at him, and they did not want to be exposed. So they did Mm. a full turnaround on Uh the article and a scornful article about Fodor was published titled Mm. Fodor finds sex in mediumship. Oh, reporting the quote unblushing audacity of Fodor's repugnant claim. According to Fodor, the mediums he witnessed used to quote, tremble, convulse and moan during sessions Entering a state of voluptuous erotic ecstasy, which was followed by true orgasm, end quote. And then the journal called Fodor disgusting, insensitive, and incompetent. Yeah. Woof. Wow. So that was a really low blow to Fodor. Yeah. He literally never said any of that. um, And it was just completely turned around on him. So Uh Fodor thought at this point, my reputation is soured. I need to do something about it. He had to prove his authenticity once again, Uh regain his reputation. But with that, he needed a legit haunting, like something like really, really true. Uh Not not another, I'm going to debunk this person. Not another, I'm going to throw this other person under the bus. 
I he needed to find a poltergeist that he could actually speak to, a legitimate mm-hmm. paranormal experience. And enter Alma <gasps> Fielding's poltergeist. Ooh. Which we will go into on the ah, next episode. Gabby! Oh, I just scared the cat. Sorry. <laughs> she was like, what? <laughs> And I'll leave you with that little cliff cliffhanger for mm. Alma Fielding, um, which is a wild ride. Mm-hmm. But now you know context of Fodor, his history, what he got into, and where mm-hmm. he was at when he discovered Alma Fielding. Mm-hmm. So we'll get into that next uh, episode. Sweet. And this brings us to... Creepy Critics Corner! Creepy Critics Corner! Kim, what you watching? Uh, one, and okay, so so I feel like I have to explain this to the people, because I've talked about this before, uh, 100 Days of Horror, which is starting for me at the time of this recording, is starting for me tomorrow, which is, is um, July 23rd. This uh, episode obviously is coming out a few days later, uh, where I watch a hundred horror films I've never seen in the hundred days leading up to Halloween. It's an intense time. <laughs> Very intense. I bank a lot of the films I've been looking really forward to, or, or even just ones that look good in any way. Uh, but I did finish both of the, other Fear Street movies, the Fear Street 1978 and Fear Street, uh, not 19, Fear Street 1666. I really want to watch those and I haven't watched them yet. I won't give spoilers. I okay, will cool. say, and it, it's funny because I was speaking to uh, a student of mine about these movies because he wasn't really into them. And I said, you know, I thoroughly enjoyed all three films. I really enjoyed the last two. Um, I especially liked 1666. I do stand by my thought that this would have been a very successful, like, 12-episode TV series. Hmm. Versus a movie? Well, uh, again, I, I feel like they crammed a lot of plot into essentially six hours. Mm. And that there was threads, and there were things that could have been done a little bit more cleanly if they had been given the time to kind of breathe into the plot. That, um, that being said, I don't know if then they would have ended up, if it would have been too bloated, if... Uh, I I am enjoying this world. I read the books, not all of them. I read maybe a dozen of them or so when I was younger. This has kind of made me want to revisit the books. I really was a big Arlstein fan. I read a bunch of his other books. Um, so I very much enjoyed the movies. I thought they were fun. I thought the soundtracks were kick-ass. I thought the acting was great. I thought there was nice representation. I really appreciated that you had these um, this, this lesbian couple at the forefront like, I thought that was really nice and lovely and, and not something you get to see all the time yeah. in, in horror. So the representation was awesome. I thought the actors were all strong. Um, so I personally really enjoyed them. I, I especially, I really liked the 1666. I kind of wish, I think that was the one where I was like, I felt like certain things turned out rushed. Mm. And this is where it would have been served by possibly being a, a TV series, but anyway, I can see uh, that. so yeah. So if, if you've not watched any of the movies, if you've not watched the other two, they're a good time. They're, they're pretty, 
I mean, honestly, they're pretty tame by horror standards. Like, I know they're rated R, but they're not overly gruesome. They're not overly anything where where if you're somebody who's potentially on the fence about horror films or, you know, like you like some, but you don't like anything super graphic. These are good ones. Again, they're fun. They're they're high energy. They're colorful for the most part. Um, You'll have a good time. Uh, I've also been watching. This is ridiculous. I don't know how it started. There's an, a, a TV station called Comet, and they do a lot of um, like sci-fi shows, sci-fi mm-hmm. movies. They, they air a lot of the Godzilla movies. They run the Stargate TV show. And I've been... <laughs> I know, Gabby. I know. I feel it myself. But I've been rewatching <laughs> Stargate SG-1, the TV show, which I'd watched, I don't know, up to a point when I was a lot younger. It's been such a good time, but what I've discovered watching this, did you ever watch Stargate? I have not. Like, I did not appreciate this during the first run of the series. And again, I never finished the series. It went on for like 10 seasons or something. I think I stopped somewhere around season seven or so. A lot of these episodes end in a really weird, dark place. (laughs) But because it's mostly this, you know, kind of episodic, like each episode is sort of standalone monster of the week style. Mm It ends in this dark place, but by the next episode, everybody's just like doing their jolly stargating things. So it's like they're on a planet and they can't all get out and they leave the ambassador behind and they get through the stargate and they're like, where's the ambassador? And they're like, we had to leave him behind. Credits. And then everything's and, normal again the next episode. Everything's normal again. Or, or, you know, like an entire race gets wiped out. Where are they? We're getting a transmission. Oh, we're, they're bombing. Credits. And the next episode, we're going through the Stargate. So, like, it's almost become comical. Oh, I could see that. Yeah, they do these, and there are these extreme close-ups on their faces, and they're kind of doing this Batman. They didn't make it. Where are they? I don't know, sir. Credits. Credits. (laughs) Uh, Like, I kind of want to create a Stargate drinking game. But um, that sounds like a fun time. It's well, and again, like the show is solid. Like you've got, you do have great actors on the show. Richard Dean Anderson, I love. Uh, you know, you, you have this great slew of guest stars who are rotating through, who are probably mostly Canadian. Um, it's been it's been kind of fun. It's a good background show when I'm doing other things and not having to fully pay attention. And it's been kind of a good like turn off my brain show. Nice. But the 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 dark credit sequences are kind of. I'm starting to take note. Like, it was a complete apocalypse. Credits. <laughs> I gave them the address of a black hole. Credits. <laughs> now I want to watch so, yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I don't. Right? It's, it's. I don't. Again, I think I caught an episode on when I was channel surfing one day because I'm one of those. As we've discussed, I like cable. cable. I like commercials. I like cable. Gives me a chance to get up and clean for two minute intervals. Um. And so I, tried, I was like, oh, I know the show. I'll just, you know, whatever. And now I, I can't stop watching it. <laughs> You're addicted. It's a problem. It's a, it's a problem, Gabby. It's a problem. Uh, what you been watching? Well, I got really excited that Hulu is doing a partnership with FX for American Horror Stories. Oh, yeah. Which I haven't started watching I yet. watched the first two episodes. The first okay. two came out. Um, it's an ode to the first season, so mm-hmm. it goes back to the original house from the haunted house in season one. But now, correct me if I'm wrong. It's like 
each episode is standalone. It is, but these first two episodes relate. It's like a part one and a part two. Sure. But the idea is is kind of like standalone anthol- episodes. Uh, standalone episodes. Yes. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's the intention, but the first two kind of go together. Like they have the same characters, they take place in the same place. Um sure. but it is great. I liked it. I really enjoyed it. And I, I love when shows do nods to old things that they did in the past. Oh yeah. Yeah. And like things that you can point out that maybe someone who's watching it for the first time would have no idea about. Um, so like while it does have an entirely new storyline, it's still the same place. It still has some of the same ghosts. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, that's kind of cool. So you, some. you do have those nods to the universe, yes. the little, oh, I, okay. Okay. I, I've been meaning to watch it. It's really uh, good. I like it a lot. I liked it a lot. I'd heard, I don't know. I talked to a couple of people who weren't big fans, but they also aren't a huge fan fan of American Horror Story American Horror Story and I can I'm I think Ryan Murphy has really interesting visuals and I think he starts off storytelling fairly strong Mm -hmm. but he has too many ideas and it all kind of falls apart so something like this with these standalone stories might actually stronger yeah kind of showcase him at his best with these really interesting visuals these really compelling ideas and characters yeah no i agree i feel like in a lot of um seasons of american horror story there's like episodes within the seasons that could literally be taken out and wouldn't be missed at all Mm -hmm. because like Mm -hmm. random stuff happens that doesn't matter um but there's like one too many subplots happening always i agree with that 100 percent. so you don't have the opportunity for that in something like this yeah no that's okay this might this might actually i think you'll really like it i'm intrigued i'll have to fit around the now 100 horror films i have and all your stargate And all my girl, let me tell you, like Daniel just descended and it was very emotional. And uh, the Tokra are having problems. And watch out. Like the Ashen came back for an episode. Oh, I, no. I was like, the Ashen? Wow. I thought we left them because we time traveled. I don't even, I don't even know what I'm saying, but like, I'm invested. <laughs> I can see that. I will tell you though, there's another show that I watched yeah. that I thought was. Very interesting. It's of the true crime realm on Ooh. Netflix. Um, Ooh, oh. It's the, I'm going to mispronounce her name pr- really bad. Uh, Elise Matsunaga, Once Upon a Crime. Mm-hmm. So it, it takes place in Brazil. And basically the story is about a woman who has been in jail for many years for shooting and cutting up her husband, Marcos yeah. Matsunga. It happens. Uh, and he was a member of a very wealthy family, and mm-hmm. he was a, an heir to their wealth. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's an interesting take because I feel like it shows a lot of different dynamics. I watched the first two episodes. It's a docu-series, so I haven't watched all of it yet, but it's pretty dark, so it's kind of hard to watch. She has a daughter, so a lot of it is her telling the story to her daughter, so it's mm-hmm. kind of hard to listen to. Mm-hmm. But... What's interesting about it is that the spin that, um, or the perspective that the show takes and that certain people take, um, you can tell that the show wants it to not be a make her the bad guy. Sure. Yeah. But in Brazil, it's a really misogynistic 
world where she mm. lives and where she was tried in her trials, the things that were said to her, uh, it shows like parts of the trials. It's just awful. Um, I'm, and I'm not like defending a murderer by any way, no, shape no. or form, but like there were a lot of things that happened contextually prior to him being killed mm-hmm. that are taken out of context. Mm. Um, and it's really interesting to see the full story. Um, highly recommend. It's interesting. It's sad. It's true crime. What do you expect? It's not going to be a happy go lucky moment. Um, and then again, the haunting of Alma Fielding, a true ghost story by Kate Summerscale is the book that I've been just reading super hard for the last like three weeks. Um, fantastic book. Really, really well done. Uh, I'll say that Kate Summerscale takes, facts and makes it feel like fiction but it's not fiction and it's facts which is kind of cool so she has just like all of these sources that she lists in the back of the book that give you all of the notes from Fodor's journals all all Mm. of everything he's ever like researched or investigated all his notes she basically what read through them and then made it sound like a fictional storytelling. So it's really, oh, that's awesome. it's a really cool perspective because it doesn't feel like a, well, Fodor did this and blah, blah, blah. There's a lot well, of emotion invested into it. And I mean, that's, that's hard to do. Yeah. It's really hard. Um, that's impressive. Yeah. It's, she's, she's great. Kate Summerscale. Awesome. Anywho, that's what I've been re- listening to, watching, that's fair. reading, that's fair. all the things. Um, but uh, having said that, thanks for listening, guys. Um, we You can find us anywhere on our social medias. It's Ghoulish Tendencies Podcast. We have our website. It is ghoulishtendencies.com. All of our social medias are on there. We also have a Patreon. It is Ghoulish Tendencies Podcast. We love a good moment of support. If you'd like to support us, you can find us on there. You can also head on over to uh, Apple Podcasts and leave a rating, review. We truly appreciate those. And that's a great way to support us without any money involved. Um, Having said that, thank you so much for listening. And stay. stay.